first a housekeeping note. Um, when we're done with the message today, we're going to stand together and we're going to share in a song together and our elders are going to be up front and in the aisles and if you want someone to pray with you this morning, then that's an opportunity for that. If you want to respond to the gospel this morning, that's an opportunity also for you to come and be received by one of our shepherds uh, in that moment. Well, last week we started a new series in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. And, and what we did last week is we looked a little bit at the city of Corinth, which was the New York Los Angeles and Las Vegas of its day. That's pretty much the best way to describe uh, what Corinth was during the time of Paul and when this letter was written. We also learned a little bit about the church that was in Corinth. We learned that the church in Corinth was by far one of the most gifted churches that Paul ever worked with. But we also learned that the church in Corinth was one of the most troubled churches that the Apostle Paul also worked with. Now, today we're going to return to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to look at three things from this chapter. First, we're going to look at the context of the chapter, how the chapter fits within the rest of the book. We're going to look at the challenge that's in this chapter, and then we're going to look at the call of this chapter. So, we're going to look at context, challenge, and the call. Let's pray. Father, now as we open Your Word… Would you open our hearts to your truth? Would you open our eyes to see your response to us so that we in faith, in hope, and love can respond to you? And we pray through Christ. Amen. So let's talk just for a second about the context of this chapter 13. Now, if you haven't noticed, 1 Corinthians is one of the most lengthy letters ever written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's arranged in our Bibles into 16 different chapters, which means that it ties the book of Romans, also written by Paul, as the two most lengthy documents or letters ever written by the apostle. Now, that's important for you to understand because of this. Chapter 13 is just one of 16 chapters. It's just one of 16 chapters. And so, it fits within the book, within the letter, for a very specific purpose of what Paul is doing as he engages the church in Corinth as they are engaging the city of Corinth. Now, the second thing that we should notice about chapter 13 is that it has been used in hmm, some creative ways along the way. Let me give you two right now, and then we'll come back to a third one. First, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is often used as a proof text to show the demise of spiritual gifts. And so, people will use 1 Corinthians 13 as some proof text to say, well, see, this is why, you know, we don't have a spiritual gifts today because it says it right here. Now, you know, so, what, what happens here is that, that, that it, a, a secondary or tertiary or, you know, or even lesser point of the chapter is being elevated over the main point of the chapter. And, and that's not what Paul has in mind when he's writing this. Well, let me write this little section here so that we can show the demise of spiritual gifts. 
See, when we use the Bible that way, when we miss the main point of, of a, a chapter of a book or a verse, then what happens is that we're elevating what we want to see in the text and not what God wants us to hear or see in the text. And if you have your Bibles and if you look in 1 Corinthians 12, you see what Paul is trying to do in this chapter is he's trying to show a gifted and troubled church a better way to share life together in love as the body of Christ. That's what he's trying to do here. That's his main point, to show them as the body of Christ how they can share life together in love. So if you'll look in 1 Corinthians 12 and you look at verse 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and then notice that last phrase, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So that's the setup. That's the lead into everything that we learn in chapter 13. Paul is trying to show the church in Corinth and us as readers today there's a better way to live. There's a better way to live. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. So, that's the first way that this passage is used in a, in a, in a creative way. Now, now the second way is, is, uh, is really interesting. All right, raise your hand uh, if you've ever been to a wedding and 1 Corinthians 13 was read. All right. Now, raise your hand if it was your wedding. Okay. All right. Let me, let me say this first. There's nothing wrong with having 1 Corinthians 13 in your wedding, okay? It's a great, it's a lovely message. But you need to understand that this is not the original purpose of 1 Corinthians 13, to be used in wedding ceremonies. That's not what the Apostle Paul had in mind when writing this. Now, it's okay, right? I mean, I have allegedly used these verses in wedding ceremonies as well, okay? But these verses were not originally meant for this, and so to to resign or confine these words to wedding ceremonies only is like wedding china, that you only use them every once in a while. And these words were meant as everyday words. They were meant as everyday words that they would shape and guide not just our behavior, our actions, but our thought process. Now, because of the way 1 Corinthians 13 is typically used in those two manners that I showed you, one as a proof text to show the demise of spiritual gifts, but notice Paul doesn't say, stop using spiritual gifts. What he says is, start exercising love. See, he doesn't say, stop this. He says, here's where you need to be as you exercise spiritual gifts. So, because of the text being used that way and because of the text being used in weddings, what we miss as modern readers are the challenging and provocative words of 1 Corinthians 13. It's completely lost on us 
how provocative these words actually are because what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is he is confronting and challenging behavior that is not giving glory and honor to God. You see, we hear these words as lovely and beautiful, right? Light the candles, cue the music, release the doves. But the original readers, when they heard these words from Paul, they heard it as a reprimand. They heard it as a rebuke. This is a douse the candles, release the hounds, and no, no, stop the music. That's what this moment is right here. You see, they're not hearing these words, these challenging and convicting words. It's not like he's taken a break in the middle of a very challenging letter and saying, okay, uh, just in case you need something for upcoming wedding ceremonies, here's a little thing I wrote note for note that you can use. See, the original hearers are not listening to this letter and going, oh, boy, woo, woof, oh, man, oh, wow, that's tough, you know. Over and over and over and over again, Paul is just like challenging and challenging and challenging issue after issue. It's not like when they hear this, they go, oh, finally, we can use this in our wedding ceremonies from now on. That's not their first response. See, every word that Paul uses in verses 4 through 7 to describe what love is and what love is not, he's already used that earlier in the letter. He's already addressed that very same issue. So, for example, when he says love does not boast, it's because he's already addressed their issues of boasting. When he says love is not arrogant, it's because he's already addressed their issues of arrogance in the earlier part of the letter. When he says love is not rude or love does not insist on its own way, it's because he's already been saying challenging things to them earlier in his letter about this. So the context of this chapter is very important and the challenge of this chapter is very important of what Paul is doing because in the end, he's issuing a call. He's saying that if you have given your heart to Jesus Christ, there are two ways to live. There are two ways to live. Now really, as we're becoming gospel-shaped people, we understand that there are really three ways to live, but that third way of life, which is mainly a first way of life for a lot of people that has no regard for God, no regard for religion, no regard for anything other than self, we're, we're not going to address that today. So I want you to hear first and foremost that this is a message for those of us who have already received Jesus Christ, those of us who already consider Him to be our Savior. This is a message that, because that's exactly what Paul is doing, he's writing people to have already, who have already placed their faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 is calling us to a gospel-shaped life. And this is how we do it. He is showing us in 1 Corinthians 13 the difference between a restrained heart and a transformed heart. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is doing. It's showing us the difference between a restrained heart and a transformed heart. So the key to understanding the truth of this passage is this. This is the primary point of 1 Corinthians 13. There are two ways to live your life in Christ. One is by a morally restrained heart, 
and one is by a supernaturally changed heart. That those are our two options for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit closer. There's a third way that this text is used, and boy, I know there's a few people here who have had time in their life where they've had preaching careers. I tell Beth all the time, man, I wish I could go back and start all over again with what I understand now about the Bible. Those poor people, I mean you poor people, those poor people who had to sit there and listen to me my first few years as a preacher, I wish I could go back with what I understand now about the Bible and what it's calling us to. See, because I'm guilty of going to a passage like this, oh, it's a list, and extracting the list out of it and saying, okay, do this, do that, any questions? And so what happens when I'm doing that is I'm taking this truth of the Bible and I'm making it a list. I'm making it something that I have to do to be accepted, to have value, to be found righteous before God. And so when we talk about a restrained heart, this is the first way to live. We're talking about a morally restrained heart. Now, Probably the first thing that you hear when I say that this is a way to live, a morally restrained heart, maybe your first thought is, well, wait a second, what's wrong with being morally restrained? And, and, and I, yeah, we could use greater emphasis on morals and morality in our society today. I'm not going to argue that point. What I want to do is I want to help you reshape this. I want to help you see this in a different way. Here's why. Moral restraint, we can also call it willpower, it only gets you so far. It only gets you so far. I mean, willpower is a wonderful thing when it works. And if Will were here today, he would understand when I'm getting ready to say, can you tell me where the weight room is? Right? Willpower. It only gets you so far. And, and so here's the thing about willpower. I don't know about you, but like Greg, we are brothers from another mother. I mean, you're obviously the much older brother. I have a sweet tooth. I mean, I do. I mean, I believe dessert, not only it should come before the meal, it should come in the middle of the meal, and it should come after the meal. So when you say to me that dessert is the meal, I'm like, that's the best thing I've heard in church in a long time. So, I don't know how it works for you, but here's how it works for me. I could stand up here right now and say, church, I am skipping dessert for the next 30 days. And you know what happens? We have an ice cream social at church tonight. I mean, it could not, it could have been, you know, it wouldn't even been on the schedule. And I could have stood up here and said, I'm skipping dessert for the next 30 days. And Josh in the wrap-up would have stood up and said, oh, we're having a dessert social tonight. Right? So, then I go, okay, well, tomorrow then. Right? Tomorrow. So I could wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm skipping dessert for the next 30 days, and Teresa Roberts would show up at my house with a truck full of desserts. That's how it works for me. Anytime I say, I'm going to stop this or I'm going to start this, boy, I'm immediately presented with the opportunity to go back on my word. You know, you want to figure out if something's controlling you or not? Say you're going to do without it for 30 days. Say you're going to do without it for 30 days. 
and uh, see how that is for you. Here's the real problem with self-control. Now, don't hear me saying we shouldn't have self-control. It's not what I'm saying. But here's the real problem with self-control. First, you can manufacture self-control. You can manufacture it, right? A morally restrained heart can avoid certain behavior for a certain amount of time. But you need to hear that the side effects are devastating. And the failure crushes you. It crushes you. When you're relying on willpower alone, devastating side effects. You see, here's the side effects. If you fail in the endeavor to have self-control, then you start beating yourself up for not having self-control. You, you, start, you start being hard on yourself. You start beating yourself up. I'm the worst person in the world because I can't even go a day without dessert. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is when you're successful. That's the worst part. The worst part is when you have enough willpower and you're successful because then you start to puff yourself up. You start to prop yourself up. You start to say, look at how strong I am. Look at how much willpower I have. Look at how much self-control I have. A morally restrained heart is still a selfish heart. It's still a selfish heart because it's all about what you're doing. It's all about what you're doing or what you're not doing. And then there's a third issue. You can practice the kind of willpower that has nothing to do with faith, hope, joy, and love. You can have the strongest willpower in the world and be an absolute jerk about it. Why, if you were just more like me. Well, I don't understand why they have that problem. You can have this kind of willpower and you can do and not do all sorts of things, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. There's no love, there's no joy, there's no peace in that, there's no hope, there's no faith. So to look at this kind of list, I mean, this is why Paul says you can do all of these things. And if there's no love attached, you've gained nothing. You've gained absolutely nothing. You know, to look at this text as just a Dr. Phil episode, right? Just stop doing it or just start doing it is looking at the wrong thing in this list. It, a moral restrained heart and willpower and self-control that's devoid of love, joy, faith, and peace, it feeds the appetite of a beast that cannot be satiated. It fans the flame, it fuels the fire of self-righteousness and self-salvation. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how strong I'm doing. If it weren't for the gospel, this would be our only way to live. If it weren't for the gospel giving us a different way to live, a better way to live, this would be our only way to live. And so the gospel comes in and says, and this is what 1 Corinthians 13 is teaching us, is there's two ways to live, a morally restrained heart or a supernaturally changed heart. Now, I realize that even using the word supernaturally changed causes some angst among some people. I get it. But I'm using that word intentionally and on purpose because our natural response is sinful. It is. 
our natural response is to seek our own best interest. The default mode of the human heart is self-salvation, self-preservation. I'm going to do what's right for me. The gospel teaches us that we are more sinful, that we are more depraved than we would ever care to believe or admit in front of other people. And so our natural response because of sin is to seek and protect what's in the best interest of self. But the gospel is showing us that the only way forward for us to have a life that is characterized by joy, a life that is characterized by peace, a life that is characterized by hope, a life that is characterized by, by faith, the only way to have this is to have a supernaturally changed heart. We have to submit ourselves and surrender ourselves to the work that only God can do by His Spirit in our hearts. Now, what's the difference between a a morally restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart? It's the difference between memory foam and styrofoam. It really is. I mean, you think about memory foam, right? It's in everything these days. I mean, maybe we should get memory foam pews. I don't know. You see, under pressure, memory foam will, you know, it'll give. And and the purpose of of memory foam is that you you put pressure on it, but when you release the pressure, what happens? It returns to its original shape. A morally restrained heart puts pressure on you to behave in a certain way, to speak in a certain way, to act in a certain way, but you take that pressure off and the heart hasn't changed. Styrofoam, on the other hand, which I know is bad, it's bad. Styrofoam, on the other way, you put pressure on styrofoam and the shape changes. The shape changes. This is what the gospel is doing for us. Somewhere along the way, we were told that the only thing the gospel does is saves us. And it's true. But the gospel does more than that. It shapes us. It shapes us. It shapes us into the people that that we need to be because of our response to the gospel. And so what we need to be is we need to have more of this idea. Let me tell you something else about me. I don't know if you're anything like me, but my life has been one futile attempt after another to restrain my heart. I mean, it has, right? I'll be fine for a while and, oh, don't do that, don't do this, you know, act this way, don't do this, you know, walk this way, talk this way. You know, my my life has just been this whole futile effort to restrain. So I need more than just a restrained heart. I need God to change my heart. I need God to change my heart. And the only way this is possible is when I am yielding myself to Him. 1 Corinthians 13 is showing us how the gospel makes this possible. You see, because in the end, it's telling us a message that I didn't really want to hear. And maybe that's why in previous lifetimes when I would come to this passage, I would totally ignore this. That in the end of the day, this passage is teaching us that we have to pay attention to our motivation. That even the good that we do for the wrong reasons is damaging our heart. 
Even the good things that we do for the wrong reasons is damaging our heart. Now, we're going to dig deeper into this next week. And we're going to talk about this connection that Paul is making here with Galatians and talking about the Spirit. Let me, let me just finish with this thought. Because the default mode of the human heart is self-salvation, a morally restrained heart will always search for ways to prop itself up. A morally restrained heart will always look for these opportunities to have the right behavior so that I can look good. But the gospel gives us a better way to live. It gives us a way out of that. See, think about this phrase. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved. In fact, say it with me. We are saved by grace through faith. Do you know what this means? It means that we are not saved by our own effort, our own work, our own merit. We're not. Because salvation is by grace a free gift, there is no pride, there is no arrogance, there is no boasting to fan the flames of self-salvation. Because salvation and our standing before God is given to us because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, there's no room in this arena for self, for selfishness. For seeking my own way. There's no room for irritability. There is no room for this. This is what Paul is trying to get at. See, a lot of people want to tell you, listen, um, there's one side of God, and He's holy and just, and if you wrong Him, well, too bad for you. And there's other people who want to say, no, God is loving, and He's accepting, and He's merciful, and He's tolerant. Don't worry about it. The gospel says that God is both at the same time, and this is what gives us the greatest humility possible. This is what gives us the greatest awareness possible. This is what gives us the greatest thought of ourself, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So yeah, this is a message for those who have not yet taken that step and responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. But this is more of a message for the rest of us who've been walking with Christ for a long time and at the end of the day are just frustrated with how little heart change we see on a daily basis. One more quick story. Anybody ever restored a car? Yeah, okay. Uh, you know what you have to deal with in cars here because of salt on the road? Do you know what it is? Rust. Rust. You know, when you restore a car, you can't just say, oh, there's some rust, I'll just paint over it. What happens when you just paint over it? Right? What ha this is a morally restrained heart. It's just painting over the rust. And so it looks good, it looks shiny, it looks flashy on the outside, but eventually we know what's going to happen. It only goes so far. So to do the right job on restoring a car, you've got to do the hard work of getting the rust out, and that's what we cannot do for ourselves. What we need the Spirit of God to do for us 
So in as much as we would pray for wisdom, in as much as we would pray for discernment, we are praying, Holy Spirit, do the deep and difficult work in my heart today so that I can respond to you out of love, out of faith, out of joy, and out of hope. A spiritually transformed heart restores our heart to its original glory in the image of God. Let's pray. Father, if we could do it ourselves, we would have already figured out how to do it. But we just keep hitting our heads against the wall. We just keep coming across all these roadblocks because we've learned painfully that willpower just doesn't work. So we need your Spirit to work in our heart to transform us. I pray right now that, that the Holy Spirit would speak deep words of love and grace and truth to each of our hearts, revealing to us those painful areas that are still keeping us from living in the joy and the peace and the hope and the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. So we ask for strength and courage to ask this of you, to be vulnerable, to yield our hearts to you. Here's our heart, Lord. Here's our heart. Speak to us only what is true. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.